0: In this episode, we talk about the liftoff and ascent phase of a rocket launch, what forces act on a spaceship in the atmosphere, and what happens as it moves from the surface of the Earth up into space. A great way to experience space technology firsthand is to watch rocket launches. Maybe you're lucky enough to see one in person, but if that's not feasible, don't worry. We live in this time where you can easily watch live streams of rocket launches from the comfort of your home. If you're not familiar with these types of events, you might think it's something very rare, but we're really very fortunate there are launches just about every week. Now, depending on your geographical location, the launch time might not be ideal for your viewing. And often, the exact time that's planned varies, since conditions need to be good, and there are many pre-launch checks that need to be performed. And watching rockets is just awesome. But it's even more interesting if you understand some of what's going on In the process. So, first, let's take a look at the theoretical part. We should start with the forces that are acting on a rocket when it's traveling through the atmosphere. To keep things simple, let's assume that a rocket is one point, and that the motion of the rocket takes place in a plane. These assumptions just help us out at the start by eliminating any lateral or side-to-side forces and any moments or torque equations on the rocket. So with these restrictions in place, there are four forces that act on our rocket. We have thrust, created by our rocket engine. We have aerodynamic drag, created by the air resistance on the surface of the rocket. We have gravity, which is pulling the entire rocket towards the center of the Earth, or whatever other body we're taking off of. And we have lift from the surface of the rocket. All these forces act in different directions. Thrust is pointed depending on the direction of the rocket engine. And it's important to note that this might not be exactly the direction that the rocket is traveling. You could imagine a rocket that started going straight up and then rotated 90 degrees and started burning sideways. The overall motion shortly after that maneuver would be some combination of the upwards and the sideways motion. So the thrust at that moment wouldn't be directly aligned with the direction that the rocket was traveling. In fact, the direction of thrust doesn't even necessarily need to align with the direction of the body of the rocket. There is something called gimbaled thrust, or thrust vectoring. We can design a rocket engine nozzle that can rotate a few degrees, and this allows us to change the direction of thrust which gives us more control in pointing the rocket. In this case, we can no longer ignore that torque that we wanted to earlier, because the thrust isn't passing through the center of gravity of the rocket. And we'll discuss that in just a moment. Gimbling is very useful, and has been used on many well-known spaceships. The space shuttle main engines were gimballed, just like engines on the Saturn V and the Falcon 9 rockets. The second of our four forces is drag. And that's pretty easy for us to understand, because it always acts opposite the direction of motion of the rocket. It doesn't matter how we're pointing or where the thrust is. The drag acts against the current direction of the motion. This is just like if you're riding a bike and there's no wind. doesn't matter which direction you're riding your bike, the air is going to push against you and slow you down. Our third force was gravity, and that always acts between the centers of two bodies, like we've discussed previously. And in this case, it's pretty much straight down to the center of the earth. And our last force is lift. And that acts perpendicular, or at 90 degrees, to the flight direction. For an airplane, we use lift to counteract the weight of the airplane, and keep the airplane up in the air. But on most rockets, the lift is quite low, maybe used to stabilize the rocket. And we're really using the thrust, our first force, to keep us up and accelerating upwards. Now, to understand these forces a little better, we can divide them into two groups of two. Take a moment to think. How would you separate them, based on how they act? If you need a hint, what would change if we didn't have any air around our rocket? We wouldn't have lift or drag, so we can group these two forces together and call them aerodynamic, because they depend on the atmosphere that we're flying through. We can also group thrust and weight together as the other two. The aerodynamic forces are only present within an atmosphere. Some parts of the launch vehicle, like the nose cone or fins, provide control or help us improve the efficiency by taking these aerodynamics into account. But these surfaces only have an effect inside the atmosphere. Once we get to space, where we have negligible air, the nose cone doesn't provide any drag reduction, and the fins won't help us steer the ship. In fact, once the rocket passes through the atmosphere, and when I say that, I mean through the majority of the atmosphere, because as we talked about in the first episode, it is a gradient of pressure and density the rocket will often jettison its nose cone, or its aerodynamic fairing. And that's because it's no longer necessary. At that point, it's just adding weight. If you see a picture of a a typical satellite, you can see they're not usually particularly aerodynamic. Often they look more like a box, maybe with some visible solar panels or a telescope. And that's because they're usually in orbit high enough that there's no significant air drag on them. There are some exceptions to this of course, and those make for really cool case studies, but let's not get too far off topic right now. If we move on from our consideration of a rocket as a point, and we look at something maybe more realistic, perhaps a cylinder, We come up with a few important points on our rocket. These are the center of gravity and the center of pressure. Let's start with the center of gravity. In a real rocket, the mass is distributed around the rocket, just like with any object. Each minuscule part has a weight. The center of gravity is the point where all the weighted relative positions Of that mass, add up to zero. So when we multiply the weight of each part with the distance that it is from that point, they all add up to zero. More intuitively, this is the balance point of the rocket. If you could hold it at this point, it wouldn't move or fall off. All objects with weight, which is mass and the gravitational acceleration, have a center of gravity. For most people standing upright, our center of gravity will be a little below our navel, and we can shift this around by moving our bodies. Keep in mind that the center of gravity of an object doesn't need to be within the object, it's just a mathematical point. Here's something you can try really quickly. Place a small object on the ground, and bend down to pick it back up. Now hopefully that was probably relatively easy. But now try it this way. Place the same object on the ground near a wall, and press your legs and bottom up against that wall. Now try to pick the object up while keeping your lower body against the wall. You're probably falling forward, am I right? When we bend over normally, our bottom moves backwards to keep our center of gravity balanced above our feet. And no one has to explain this to us, we just naturally know how to do this. If the wall is preventing us from shifting naturally, our center of gravity just moves forward as we bend forward. And eventually, that center of gravity is no longer above our feet. We can't balance ourselves and we tip over. Now in rocketry, the center of gravity is useful for us because it lets us simplify the rocket down to that point that we were using before. If we apply a force to the center of gravity, it creates a linear acceleration without an angular acceleration. This is the only point where the object won't rotate in some way when you apply a force. And the weight of our rocket, one of those four forces, can be thought of as acting on this point. Now obviously gravity pulls every infinitesimal part of the rocket, but we can say that this is equal to the weight of the entire rocket being pulled on the center of gravity. The center of gravity is also important for our thrust because it determines the torque on our rocket. If the center of gravity lies on the thrust vector, that's the line that the force passes through, then like we said before, the rocket will fly straight. If our thrust doesn't pass through this point, then we get some sort of rotation in our rocket. And this concept is used throughout science and engineering. It's a very useful way of simplifying a very complex shape down into something that we can easily apply equations to. Do you remember our other group of forces, the aerodynamic forces? Well those are affected by a different point, the center of pressure. Now this is the same idea as a center of gravity, Except, instead of being the center point of all the gravitational forces, i.e. the weight, it's the center of the aerodynamic forces. And this is the point through which the lift and the drag act. The equivalent point, just like before. When we design a rocket, the choices we make determine where on the rocket these points are located. It's depending on the shape of the rocket, and how we distribute the mass around the rocket. And we need to be aware of where these points are, because they relate to the overall stability of our rocket. What do I mean when I say stability in this case? Our rocket has some desired flight path. If a gust of wind comes along and pushes it off course, we want it to return to its previous course. As an analogy, imagine a ball balanced perfectly on top of a hill. It's stationary, but if any tiny force disturbs it, it will roll down the hill. This is something unstable. On the other hand, if the ball is at the bottom of a valley or in a bowl, if we push it off to one side, it will roll back to its original position. And this is a stable system. It's a very simplified example, but I think it does serve to demonstrate the general concept of stability in this case. So how does this analogy affect where the center of gravity and the center of pressure should be? A rocket will rotate around the center of gravity, when lift and drag act on the center of pressure. So imagine we want to fly straight upwards, but a tiny gust pushes us to the right. We'll freeze time for a moment. Our rocket is now angled off of its straight upwards flight plan. We're still moving upwards at this instant, so the drag is still straight down. The angled rocket means that lift is created in the rightward direction. And this acts through our center of pressure. So imagine this center of pressure is above the center of gravity. The forces pushing the nose of our rocket right will push it further and further right and further and further off course. Now if the center of pressure is exactly at the same point as our center of gravity, the aerodynamic forces won't rotate our rocket at all. Finally, if our rocket is designed so that the center of pressure is below the center of gravity, the bottom of the rocket will move right, because remember the forces are acting on the center of pressure. But we're rotating around the center of gravity, so if the bottom moves right, the nose moves left and that restores us to the straight upwards flight path. So if we want a rocket that's stable in its trip through the atmosphere, we want our center of pressure to be below our center of gravity. And this is why if you've seen a rocket, and if it has fins, they're usually located in the back of the rocket. Aerodynamic surfaces, or fins, at the back of the rocket move the center of pressure backwards, and this helps keep it below the center of gravity for stability. When launching a rocket, we need to consider the fact that the Earth rotates. And this is very important in rocket science. First of all, the atmosphere moves with the Earth's surface somewhat which leads to cross-track drag and lift. But this is a fairly small effect overall, and it dwarfs in comparison to what we're about to talk about. And that is the fact that the Earth's rotation adds velocity to your spacecraft at launch. This is just like if you were to throw a ball out of a moving car. The ball's velocity relative to the ground would be the sum of the thrown velocity and the velocity of the car. If we launch in an eastward direction, with the Earth's rotation, near the equator, we gain almost 465 meters per second. That's 1,670 kilometers an hour. And remember that when we're trying to get into an orbit, it's all about tangential speed, not just how high up we go. So this free velocity is extremely helpful. Because the Earth is close to spherical, we can determine the tangential surface velocity for any latitude on the surface of the Earth. So the amount of speed we gain decreases with the cosine of the latitude. At either pole, there's no eastward component of the motion, so you're not gaining any velocity. Which makes sense, because if you zoom out and see the Earth, your rocket is just rotating along with the Earth. Now obviously, this velocity is always eastward, because that's the direction of the Earth's rotation. And this means that certain countries actually have a natural advantage when it comes to launching rockets and getting to space. Kennedy Space Center is in the south of the United States, in order to be closer to the equator and get more of this free velocity. It also has open water to the east, which is another important consideration. This way, in the event of an accident, the rocket isn't traveling over land, which is much more populated generally. The main European spaceport. Is located in Kourou, French Guiana. And this is even closer to the equator, and also has open water to the east. The inclination of our launch site not only tells us how much of an initial eastward boost our rocket gets, it also shows us what our minimum orbit inclination is. We can always adjust our inclination once we're in orbit assuming we have enough fuel on our ship. But without any extra maneuvers, a launch site at 30 degrees latitude, for example, cannot go directly into an orbit less than 30 degrees inclination. If this is a bit confusing, remember that the orbital plane needs to pass through the center of mass of the central body, in this case the Earth you physically cannot have an orbit that is parallel to the equator, but at 30 degrees latitude. That's not how orbits work. Therefore, a 30-degree latitude start needs to pass through the equatorial plane at some point, and that forces that orbital plane to have at least 30 degrees of inclination. Maybe this is easier to visualize If you imagine a launch from the north or south pole, in this case, it doesn't matter which direction you take off from, you will end up in a 90 degrees inclined polar orbit. Now, we don't always want a spacecraft in an equatorial orbit. The International Space Station, along with many Earth observation satellites, are at higher inclinations. And this can allow them to have a ground track that covers the entire Earth, instead of just the equator. And this can be very useful if you want to, for example, analyze weather, or perhaps take pictures of the Earth. We will talk a little more about some of the specific orbits we want in the future. If we wanted to launch a spacecraft towards the west, we would have to overcome this velocity from the Earth's rotation. So we would be starting at a disadvantage. And this is the reason that the overwhelming majority of satellites that rotate the Earth rotate in the same direction as the Earth rotates. Just because it's easier. One of the other reasons for this is that geosynchronous orbits need to rotate the same way as the Earth. But I'm getting ahead of myself again, and we'll talk about special types of orbits in a future episode. So now we know the effect of location of the launch site. In order to find a good ascent trajectory, we need to balance a whole bunch of factors We want to minimize our propellant usage, or maximize the payload for a given propellant amount. And this is a trajectory optimization problem. We don't want to spend a long time in the atmosphere, because more time ascending means more time that the propellant is spent resisting the gravity of the Earth. Gravity losses are an interesting concept. Remember that gravity is an acceleration, and the units of acceleration are meters per second squared, or meters per second per second, or you could think of this as velocity per second. And this means that every second we spent resisting this gravitational field, we lose more velocity. If we only consider gravity, we want to provide our thrust perpendicular to that gravitational field. And it's also optimal to apply a very large thrust for a very short time at the start of the ascent. That way we spend less time, and hence less fuel, quote-unquote, fighting the gravitational pull. Let's imagine the opposite scenario, what we don't want a rocket with thrust equal to the force of gravity. This rocket would be burning fuel and not moving anywhere. So ideally, we would have one huge thrust at liftoff that would take us all the way into space, and then we could circularize our orbit. But unfortunately, we need so much energy that we generally need to apply the force for a fairly long time and a large amount of this thrust is parallel to the gravitational field. So gravity losses are unavoidable, and we just need to try to do as much as we can to limit them. Gravity losses are actually some of the highest losses compared to inefficiencies that come from other sources. Aerodynamic drag scales with the square of the velocity. And this is one of the main factors limiting your speed when you're riding a bike, for example. The drag quickly becomes so high that you can't put enough energy into the bike to overcome it. If you've seen fully streamlined bicycles, these are able to reduce the coefficient of drag and the cross sectional area to achieve some truly amazing speeds with the same energy input as a regular bicycle. But ultimately, even in these, eventually, the drag just gets to be too large to accelerate further. So back to rockets. If we go too fast, the aerodynamic forces become higher, and we have to build a more robust rocket. There's also the issue of the path of the rocket. If we go straight up, then we have very little sideways momentum. When we clear the atmosphere, and then we'll need more delta V to circularize our orbit. Remember, to accelerate tangentially to the Earth. If our angle is too far from the vertical, we get more sideways velocity, but we have to take a longer path through the atmosphere, and this means more drag overall. If you have to steer the rocket, That requires propellant that's not being used directly to achieve your orbit. So we don't want to steer more than necessary either. Basically, we have to make a whole bunch of trade-offs in order to get the best overall output. This practice is very common in engineering. In fact, I would almost argue that engineering itself is the practice of balancing different factors in order to get an optimum output. So what's the general philosophy for these rocket launches? Usually we want to go almost straight up at first, and then very gradually increase the angle that the rocket is travelling. Ideally, once you're out of the thickest part of the atmosphere, the rocket is mostly pointing sideways and gaining that tangential velocity that it needs to orbit the body. One useful concept for this is the idea of a gravity turn. We start with an initial vertical launch, and the rocket flies straight up. Then we do what is called a pitch-over maneuver, to turn the rocket just slightly so it's not pointing quite vertically. From here, we allow the gravitational force to change the trajectory of the rocket. If we had no thrust, the rocket would follow a ballistic ellipse and fall back to the ground, like if you threw a ball. But we do have thrust, so the angle slowly increases until the rocket is flying parallel to the surface. And by the time the rocket would start to fall back to Earth, we want it to have enough velocity and altitude to then circularize into a stable orbit. The earlier the pitch over maneuver is performed, the lower our gravity losses. But the trade off is that pitching earlier means, again, traveling through more of the atmosphere, and hence we have more drag. The gravity turn has low steering losses because gravity does the turning, so that's a benefit. But the ascent times are also longer than what is ideal, so we have increased gravity losses. We can improve this gravity turn flight path for some rockets by having a steeper first section and a flatter later section. We have a slightly faster ascent and slightly lower gravitational losses. But the drawback now is that we have to provide some sort of steering input where the rocket thrust is not totally aligned with its velocity. If we're taking off from a body that doesn't have an atmosphere, things are a lot simpler. And actually, the gravity turn is the mathematically optimal maneuver. Normally, there are always other constraints that alter our ideal trajectory. Remember that the acceleration that we have needs to be safe for the payload or the crew. The shape of the fairing changes the drag coefficient, which also changes where the maximum dynamic pressure occurs. If we talk about multi-stage rockets, we have further complexities from the period of time between stage separation and ignition of the next stage. These brief coasting times also change the trajectory. We need to consider the heating of the rocket, due to friction and compression of the air, so overall there are a huge number of considerations that need to be taken into account. And to make matters more complex, many of these factors are related, so changing one has some effect on some of the others, or maybe all of the others. And I'm not claiming to have all the answers. I'm by no means an expert on ascent profiles. I just want to introduce the main concepts and get you thinking about what factors go into a design of a rocket. And if you look carefully at the design of some rockets, maybe you'll be able to see what challenges the designers of those rockets were trying to contend with. And hopefully this gives you a little bit of an appreciation on just how complex a problem this is for those who do need to try and solve it. So let's put some of this theory together and see what actually happens to rockets. Now obviously the exact steps depend on the rocket in question. Rockets have different number of stages. Nowadays, we're even more spoiled with some reusable first stages that can be retrieved or can land on the Earth. And this is very cool to witness. Nevertheless, there are many steps which are common in almost all launches, and this is what I'll talk about today. The exact pre-flight timeline Varies a lot, again, depending on the launch vehicle. But what are the main things that are done? Well, this process can start one or more days before the scheduled launch time. There are often built-in holds where the countdown is paused at a predetermined time to check on the status of the rocket and to keep the launch aligned with the launch window. the rocket is moved to the launch pad and powered up. The launch pad often has a structure to support the rocket for fueling and for different pre-flight tests. They also usually have systems to deflect the rocket exhaust and to diffuse some of the loud noise when the rocket engine does start. And at the launch pad, a number of checks are performed to ensure that everything is operating normally. Eventually, non-essential personnel are cleared out from the launch pad area, and they start to load propellants into the vehicle. Now the timing of this is very important. It's not like filling up your car that can happen pretty much whenever. We often have cryogenic propellants or oxidizers, and these need to be loaded at precise times, because they evaporate very quickly even in normal weather. Speaking of, during the countdown, the weather is closely monitored to ensure that the conditions are safe for a launch. Usually the launches have alternate dates planned, in case something causes the launch to need to be aborted and rescheduled. We mentioned launch window a moment ago, and this concept is important when we discuss rocket launches. For most missions, we can't just launch whenever we feel like. There are certain dates and times we need to launch. It might be important to rendezvous with another vehicle in orbit, or a celestial body, or to reach a specific orbit and spot in that orbit. If we're going to Mars, technically we can launch whenever we want to get there, but there are certain times when it will be much easier to intercept the planet, And we will use less fuel, less time, or less of both. And we can actually compare these factors very nicely in something called a pork chop plot. It's kind of a funny name because I don't see much of a resemblance to pork chops personally, but it's a contour plot, like a topographic map. The axes have departure and arrival dates, and we plot contours of characteristic energy. There are many ways to travel between two bodies in space, and each trip will have a departure time and an arrival time, and some amount of energy that it takes. So if we look at these plots, we can find departure dates that suit the fuel and travel time requirements of our mission. It's a very useful way to see all these important factors at once. There's a famous story about pork chop plots used in the Voyager program. Apparently engineers at the California Jet Propulsion Lab plotted roughly 10,000 potential trajectories. And besides their obvious main mission objectives, they tried to eliminate encounters that would happen during Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays, so they wouldn't need to work at these times. I think it's a cute story that really contrasts the unwavering science and math energy that you can't change with the very human concerns people have, like just enjoying the holidays and being with their family. But back to the launch phase. The most important part of many launches Is obviously the liftoff. Do we have an exact definition of T minus zero? Well, not really, there isn't a consistent definition. For some launchers, this is the instant that the rocket lifts off. For some, it might be when the launch clamps are released. Or maybe when the booster rockets get ignited. Interestingly enough, often the main engines are not fired at T minus zero they're usually started a few seconds before this time. And this is to build up enough thrust and to ensure that they are working properly before committing to a launch. If some sort of anomaly is spotted in those milliseconds before takeoff, often there's time to turn off the engines and abort the launch. So, around t minus zero, we have liftoff. And again, it might not be exactly that zero mark, but the rocket starts accelerating upwards. And remember, there are a number of factors that work to increase the rocket's speed. We have propellant being burned, which decreases the mass of the craft and means that it's accelerating faster and faster. The atmosphere is also getting thinner which reduces the drag on the rocket. As the rocket picks up speed and ascends, it passes through a point of maximum dynamic pressure, also called max Q. And dynamic pressure is the aerodynamic stress on the rocket. It depends mostly on air density and the vehicle velocity. So it makes sense that dynamic pressure would be zero, when the rocket's at the launch pad. There's no vehicle velocity. And the dynamic pressure is also zero up in space, because here the vehicle has a lot of velocity, but there's no air density. So since it has a positive value in the atmosphere, it must have a maximum point. It's a balance between the increasing speed and the decreasing density. This concept is actually proven by a theorem of calculus called Rolle's Theorem. It's one of those times when math formalizes something that everyone already intuitively knew. Basically, it says that every well-behaved function that has equal values at two different points must have at least one maximum or minimum somewhere between them. If you start driving your car now, starting from a speed of zero, and you stop at some point in the future, somewhere between that starting and stopping point, there's a point where you reached your maximum speed. Maximum in this case because we can't have a negative speed. At this point of maximum speed, your rate of change, your acceleration, is zero. I think we can appreciate that it's useful to write these things out in a formal mathematical language. But it might also be part of the reason that some people think parts of mathematics are silly. Because I think that most children would grasp at least part of this concept pretty intuitively, provided it was well explained to them. But anyway, the same idea holds for our max q. We start at zero and we end at zero with some positive values in between, so somewhere we have a maximum. In typical rockets, this occurs at an altitude of around 10 to 15 kilometers. Some rockets are able to throttle down their engines slightly, slowing down just a bit to prevent damage, and other rockets are just designed to be able to handle the mechanical stress at this point. If booster rockets are present, they may be the first engines to burn out. So, booster burnout is followed by the separation of those boosters. Remember, for staging, our empty rocket structures that are no longer needed are discarded to reduce the overall weight. For some rockets, the boosters are recovered, either for analysis or maybe even for reuse and if they're not recovered, they sink into the ocean. Eventually our rocket reaches Main Engine Cutoff, also just abbreviated MECO. As the name suggests, this is where the first stage main engines are turned off. From here, the remaining events depend more on the rocket being launched. For rockets with serial staging, the second stage engine would be ignited. At some point when our rocket has left the densest part of the atmosphere, the payload fairing might be jettisoned. Like we talked about earlier, that was an aerodynamic cover to protect our payload of the rocket. It's very important to protect the payload, which is often something fragile like a satellite, as it's passing through the atmosphere because we have a whole lot of aerodynamic pressure and heating. But eventually the payload needs to be put into space, so we usually drop off that fairing. Fairings either burn up on re-entry, or are destroyed when they crash into the ocean. I should note that fairings have been successfully recovered, so perhaps that's the way of the future, leading us to more overall reusability in rockets. And that for us is the launch of a rocket. We discussed the various forces and how they contribute to the trajectory of the rocket. We also talked about all the different factors that contribute to the optimization of this very complex problem. And finally, we looked at some of the key events and terms to watch out for. So hopefully you have a better understanding of what's going on during a rocket launch. I hope you learned a little about some of the different factors that go into making a rocket launch successful. To me, the launch of a rocket is a very visceral thrill. And I think it actually becomes more impressive when you understand the magnitude of what's going on and all the different factors that are at play in each stage of the launch. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to be notified when a new episode is released, please consider subscribing to the podcast. If you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, go ahead and recommend it to them. Together we can teach more people about space. And the best part is, you get a friend who you can learn alongside. If you have any feedback, comments, or ideas, I would be thrilled to hear them. You can contact the show at the Lab at gmail.com. Until next time, and stay curious, my friend.